0: Welcome back to A Dream and a Fear. I'm here with Max. We've just done another podcast uh, and we've done it with a man called Michael Asher, who's written a number of interesting books uh, from Lawrence Rommel right the way through to Thessinger. Uh, But today we were talking about Chinese Gordon and his life and particularly surrounding Michael's book on Khartoum. Max, do you want to just sum up uh, what we spoke about?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a really fascinating talk for me Talk Michael told us all about Gordon's life from China uh, through to Sudan and his infamous death uh, in Khartoum uh, and also talked a lot about Gordon's reception, which is really interesting, given, you know, some of the conversations that are being had around Empire today. So, yes,
0: tune in and hope you enjoy listening to it thanks max and we 'll leave you in the warm embrace of uh, Michael. so yeah hi, hi Michael thanks very much for joining us we 're going to be here we 're going to dive straight into uh, Chinese Gordon and just okay. to give some context to our listeners who was he and what was his background
2: okay well um Gordon uh, came from England, he was from a military family, four generations of service in the military. Um, His father was a lieutenant general in the artillery and his father, he wasn't really brought up as a Christian, but his father had very marked ideas about honour, justice and, you know, very, I won't say strict values, but those kinds of values and, you know, he imbued Gordon Charles Gordon in, with these values when he was still small,
1: and um, um, so so did he then join the military at a relatively young age, or how did his yes. his his, ch- his youth and his career then develop?
2: Um, he joined the he went to the um, Royal Military Academy at Woolwich at the age of fifteen. Now Woolwich doesn't exist anymore, but um, it was an academy that trained only officers for the artillery and the Royal Engineers. And um Gordon actually wanted to join the Royal Artillery, uh, like his father, um, which was considered sort of more um elite perhaps than the, the Royal Engineers. But Gordon had this thing about justice and he hated petty tyrannies and he was always getting into tiffs with the sort of, you know, cadet NCOs and he couldn't actually be quite violent when uh he was threatened, you know, so as a result of that, uh, when he graduated, he was sent to the Royal Engineers rather than the artillery.
1: Mm, okay. And so was it the, the, the Siege of Sevastopol is often uh, noted as the place where he made his reputation as a fearless and, and charismatic leader. Uh, uh, what was it about his character that, that made him uh, such a strong leader?
2: Um, well, I think in Sevastopol it wasn't so much his leadership qualities, I can say a little about, bit more about that later, but as an engineer officer, and the Royal Engineers at that time was only officers, and they had some of the roles that we would be accorded to special forces these days, so one of his jobs was to crawl behind enemy lines to spy on the enemy, and you know, make a map of their dispositions, and Part of the job was even standing up in full view of the enemy to draw their fire, to um, you know um, decide where the the, the the enemy were were hidden, sort of thing. So obviously that was a very brave thing to do. It needed a lot of courage. So that those were the kinds of things that Gordon did at Sevastopol. But um, as for his leadership qualities, I mean, Wolsey, who was his superior, said this about him, that he had these sort of penetrating blue eyes. and He had this aura about him that pe- made people just want to obey whatever he, every orders he gave. So I think he was a natural leader. He had this sort of aura of what might be called charisma. I don't know, but um, interesting. You know, people just tended to obey him.
0: And we, we start to see that leadership um, during his time in China, where he was nicknamed Chinese Gordon. Can yeah. you sort of explain to our listeners what Britain were doing in China and sort of his context to his life there.
2: Well, um, just to set the scene, at the time Gordon arrived in China, the Taiping uh, Rebellion was going on, and this was, you know, a very bloody civil war. I mean, the Taipings wanted a return to the Ming Dynasty, which they considered to be the last indigenous dynasty, as opposed to the Manchus who were the existing sort of imperial family and the Manchus were considered to be foreigners. So, um, and the rebellion was led by a man called Hung who claimed to be Jesus Christ's younger brother. And, you know, their beliefs were a mixture of Christianity imported by uh, European missionaries and traditional Chinese beliefs. But anyway, um, so this is what was going on when uh, Gordon went out there, in fact, the uh, the Taipings had captured Nanking, which was the old Ming uh, capital, as opposed to Beijing, which was the base of the Manchu uh, emperors. And they slaughtered 28,000 people in capture- capturing that city. So, you know, it's a pretty pretty bloody affair. Mm. But at this point, um, the Anglo-French mission arrived in, at Beijing. And their task was to enforce the the Treaty of Tiansen, which had been, I think it was 1859, which actually opened Chinese ports for the import of opium, Mm. which of course, you know, basically was drug dealing, you know, and on a massive scale, you know? And the British were bringing opium from India and selling it to the Chinese in return for silver. And they would only accept silver. They wouldn't accept any trade goods. You know, so obviously the Chinese um, imperial government, I mean, they were well aware of the dangers of opium. Opium use was actually illegal in China, except for doctors. It could be used as a medicine. But um, so they were well aware of the dangers and they didn't want to go along with this. Mm. So the British sent, it was actually an Anglo-French force sent to reinforce this treaty, which, of course, the the um, Chinese imperial, imperial government had been forced to sign mm. so Gordon was actually part
1: of that force mm-hmm. Could you could you just explain, sorry the link just for our listeners yeah. who aren't aware, could you explain the link between the treaty uh, that you just mentioned and the the, uh, the the Taiping rebellion what was the, the connection that, that led Gordon um, to be there
2: Well as far as I know there wasn't a direct connection, uh, the Taiping rebellion as I understand it was And there were several million rebels, I mean, it was a large force. Um, They were objecting to the corruption of the imperial government and the fact that they um, viewed it as a foreign dynasty. As I said, they wanted to return to the Ming dynasty, which they considered to be the last indigenous one. So there wasn't really a direct link. It was just that this Anglo-French force turned up in the middle of this rebellion
1: Mm, I see okay thank you very much for that and and very and, and obviously sort of relevant to 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 the things that we see unfolding in the news today there is a A deep unhealed stark wound with the uk's relations with china as a result of the west in general as a result of this period in history and it's often symbolized by the looting and burning of the summer palace something that gordon himself actually disagreed with and so how far do you feel that these events still play out or play a role in relations between the west and china today or or uk and china today you know the
2: opium wars they went on for a long time but they devastated china for a hundred years i mean Of course, there were many corrupt um, Chinese traders who got in on the act. So it wasn't just the British doing it, but, you know, it divided the country, you know, millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people became addicted. And of course, it was also draining the Chinese economy because they were paying silver for these these Mm. drugs, you know. So, Mm. you know, it had a devastating effect on China and it's not really
1: surprising that they look back on that with some disdain, you know, because... Yeah, and and was Gordon, just to clarify as well, was Gordon himself involved in in much uh, any fighting in China or was he just part of the delegation to to enforce the treaty? um,
2: No, he was involved in a lot of fighting because after the arrival of this Anglo-French column, which he came with, um, he moved to Shanghai and became the commander of what was called the... Um, ever victorious army which was a kind of mercenary army raised from Chinese soldiers and European and American officers Mm. and um, Gordon actually got the job of commanding this force and the force was basically to protect and the aim of the force was to protect Shanghai where a lot of the opium dealers, the European and American opium dealers actually lived so it was paid for by them of course, you know Mm. And um, Gordon really got his name as commander of this um, ever-victorious army. And they were very successful. I mean, they recaptured. They were fighting against the Taipings, of course, often alongside the Imperial Army because there was a common aim. Mm. And um, they recaptured several cities. I mean, and Gordon, when he started, he he knew nothing about um, infantry combat, as I said, he trained as an engineer officer at Woolwich, so, you know, infantry tactics weren't part of the training. Yeah. So he, he, didn't know, he didn't know anything about guerrilla warfare. Um, a lot of the fighting, you know, they, they, um, they used boats for a lot of the uh, movements, and Gordon didn't know anything about the use of boats at that point. So, you know, he he started pretty much from scratch, but then he had this tremendous charisma that we've talked about before, This ability just to make, he he was very calm and very, he had this very peaceful and calm demeanour. As I said, he could lose his temper at times, but he had this very sort of peaceful demeanour and that impressed a lot of people, I think. And again, he would lead from the front. Um, He didn't carry a weapon. Uh, He carried a a cane, although we can talk about that later, where that idea came from. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, for example he he uh continued the role that he'd played at Sevastopol where he you know went behind enemy lines, observed enemy fortifications, and then you know would make a note of the weakness in the fortification. Mm. And then the next morning the ever victorious army would focus on that particular weakness. And it was very successful, as I said. And they recaptured Su Chow which was you know a major city um, but they also massacred quite a, a few Ch- well the story is that Gordon had made a pact he'd actually bribed some of the Taiping generals to open the gates and let the everlast, the ever victorious army in mm. and on the understanding that nobody would be harmed but of course once the soldiers got inside much against um, Gordon's wishes, they just massacred everyone. And Gordon was absolutely shattered by this because, I, as I said, he was a man of honour, you know, and he'd actually given his word that nobody would be touched. And apparently he sort of brooded, went into a depression and brooded over this for months, you know, because he'd given his word. Oh. Mm. Interesting. So that, that's, that gives you an idea of the kind of man Gordon was.
1: Yeah, fantastic,
2: mm. thank
0: you. And yeah, as you used to sort of mention his character, there he was a man of honour. Gordon sort of passionately opposed slavery and this led him to the Sudan, which your book um, documents incredibly well. Can you give us a bit of context to this time?
2: Yeah, at this time. um, uh, Well, I should say to start off with that the Sudan was a major... Played a major part in the slave trade. Mm-hmm. It was at that time. It was basically an Egyptian colony, but the Egypt was a, actually a colony of the Ottoman Empire, at least nominally. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to get rid of the slave trade. And Gordon was sent with a number of other European officers, an American, an Italian, um, to Gondokoro, which is about the same place as um, modern-day Juba in South Sudan. Um, on the White Nile, and he tried to suppress the slave trade. But he wasn't very successful because the slave, he could police the river because, as I said, it was on the Nile, dock was on the Nile. But of course, Sudan's a very big country, and the slave traders just managed to avoid using the river. And when they got fur- slightly further north, they used camels to transport the slaves across the desert, the Sahara. So it wasn't very uh, successful. And the other thing was that the um, Turco-Egyptian officials, and let's remember this was a Turco-Egyptian colony at that time. It wasn't ruled by the British. Gordon was working for them as a sort of mercenary. Um, And many of the Turco-Egyptian officials were, were themselves involved in the slave trade. It's, you know, something that Gordon realised. And, you know, he hated these corrupt officials because he saw that, you know, how could he get rid of the slave traders when, you know, the, the government itself was involved in it. Mm. So he actually resigned. And um, the Khedive of Egypt, who he's officially working for, wouldn't accept his um, resignation. So Gordon said, OK, I'll stay on the understanding that you make me governor general and I have absolute power over you know the all these corrupt officials so that he became governor general actually for the first time because later he became governor general for a second time but
1: okay very um, fascinating yeah. and, and, and how far yeah. just just carrying on for that how far was his anti-slavery yeah. uh, driven by his religious fervor
2: um well again this is an interesting question now as i said um gordon wasn't brought up as a practicing christian He became a Christian at the age of 21, when he was already a serving officer. He was converted by a fellow officer called Drew. And Gordon's brand of Christianity, I mean, I I wouldn't call it fundamentalist, because Gordon had a very tolerant attitude to all religions. He wasn't a Christian fanatic. That's the way he's often been painted, but he wasn't like that at all. He was a non, what would be called today a non-dualist, you know. He believed that, you know, there was one God, everything that existed was part of God. This is the old perennial philosophy, as mm-hmm. Aldous Soxley called it, you know, that, you know, everything was just part of one thing. You know, call you could call it God, you can call it the Great Spirit, whatever, you know, but that was his brand of Christianity, mm-hmm. you know. So it wasn't fanatic, it wasn't fundamentalist, But it was this deeply held belief that, you know, everything belonged to one thing. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting because, of course, this era was the height of materialism. You know, it's 1882 when Nietzsche said God is dead, you know, because the um, intelligentsia of Europe had gone over to materialism. They dropped religion. As their main sort of ideology around eighteen fifty you know mm-hmm. so although well, they still paid lip service to it, but the mm-hmm. you know the bosses in the British Empire they were materialists you know, so you know they'd go to church on Sunday and then spend the rest of the week exploiting people you know so they, <laughs> uh, you know so you know his brand of Christianity was you know very different from the way most people saw it in those days, you know, especially you know the elite of the empire
0: mm. And how-
2: so, yeah, getting, <laughs> sorry, getting back to the slave trade, yeah. I think, you know, Gordon had these very well-developed sense, um, ideas about justice, about equality, about, um, you know, values that he'd, you know, uh, imbibed from his father um, during his early life. And Christianity was sort of an expression of that when he became a Christian at the age of 21 it was more that he already had these values and he saw that Christianity also embodied those
0: values. Mm. Interesting, and, and how, yeah. did, how did his views on slavery differ to the general person at that time in Victorian England?
2: Well, of course, as I said, you know, most people were materialists, so in materialism, everything is regarded as an object, so including other humans. So mm. that's when you still hear people saying this today, at least yeah. I do here. you know, that. You know, slavery was okay. Those people were just objects, so it didn't really matter, you know? I mean, surprisingly enough, you still do get those views, you know? So, Gordon, and let's be clear about this, Gordon never regarded other humans as objects, you know? Yeah. That was one of the, the mainstays of his character. And, you know, he really liked the Sudanese people, and he always said, and this may come into another question, I don't know, that he would like to see a return to what the country was like before colonialism. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't a great empire builder, you know? He, he wanted to see them return to the kind of more egalitarian society they had before the Turks colonised uh, Sudan.
0: That's Yeah, that's really interesting, particularly yeah. uh, bearing in mind the sort of legacy that is left with Gordon. Um, yeah. In... In 1884, he returned to the Sudan for the second time, this time to put down a sort of serious uh, revolt led by a Muslim religious leader and self-proclaimed Mahdi. Why were the Brits in Sudan at that time? And what was sort of Gordon's role in this?
2: Okay, well, um, first I should reiterate, the Brits weren't actually in Sudan. It was a Turco-Egyptian colony. I mean, officially, it was a colony Of Egypt which was a colony of the Ottoman Empire so the Brits actually there were British officers like Gordon but it was the government in Mm. the imperial government wasn't British it was uh, Ottoman Mm. you know and the Ottoman of course were very cosmopolitan they weren't just Turks they were Armenians and they were um, people from the Caucasus and you know it was quite some were Christians most were Muslims. You know, so, you know, that's one thing that many people don't understand that this rebellion was not against the British. It was against the Turk, Turco Egyptian regime, mm. which was very, very harsh. And I mean, the taxation was so high, it amounted to theft. I mean, mm. you know, and these uh, officials were very, very corrupt, which was the thing Gordon objected to, of course. You know, so the rebellion by the Mahdi, Mohammed Ahmed, was not against the British, it was against the Turco-Egyptian regime. So, having said that, of course, in Egypt, the British were the de facto power, so they weren't nominally in charge, but the British Consul General, I'm sorry this is a bit complicated. No, here, no this, but, is, this is very Br- interesting for our listeners. The British well. Consul no. General, Sir Evelyn baring he was the real de facto power in Egypt. So, although Egypt was officially ruled by the Khedive, It was Bering who sort of ruled the roost. He pulled the strings. So having said that, the British were the power uh, behind the throne in Egypt, and Sudan was a colony of Egypt, but not officially. Sorry sorry to put in, um, Michael, but
1: could you just explain, because I'm I'm not sure this will be entirely clear to our listeners, was there a sort of power sharing going on between the Ottomans and the Brits, is what you're saying?
2: Not really. The Ottomans weren't really in it. I mean... Nominally Egypt was a colony of the Ottoman Empire yeah. But the o- Ottoman Empire by that time was kind of in decline I see. And this had all happened over the Suez Canal yeah. The Suez Canal ha- had originally belonged to the Egyptian government This you know Ottoman government in Egypt But they defaulted on their debts And of course their debtors were Britain, France mm-hmm. and Russia I think was the other one you know, who'd lent them this colossal amount of money to build the canal. And of course, um, they defaulted on their debts. So basically, the British just took over the country. Ah, yes. I mean, I, you know, the, the, I think, yeah, the French and the Russians were involved, but to a less extent, you know. So, you know, so that's how they gained control, by money. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> well, you know, yeah. the government was in debt. So. Yeah. so that's how they took control of Egypt. Okay. So, I mean, that's, I know it sounds a bit complicated, but that was the situation. Now, of course they had these, well, just to tell you a little bit about the Mahdi's rebellion. Uh, The Mahdi was a Muslim Sufi holy man, Muhammad Ahmed. He belonged to a Sufi brotherhood. And interestingly enough, of course, the Sufis have mystical religious beliefs, which are very similar to Gordon's Mm. beliefs. You know as a non-dualist Christian you know so the Sufis have the, I, almost identical beliefs so that's an interesting uh, yeah. thing anyway so um, he raids raised this huge army and they took El Abade in Western Sudan and the Turco Egyptian government rather stupidly sent a huge column with state-of-the-art weapons I mean gatling guns and crop mounting guns and everything <laughs> to Kordofan, which is a semi-arid area. And, you know, it's, it's huge. It's really big, a really big place. And they marched every sort of three weeks, you know, to get to El Abey. And, of course, by that time, they're out of water. They're out of food. And, you know, it was very hot. And, um, you know, the Mahdi's troops just, or, you know, forces just surrounded them and completely wiped them out. I think about, like, 200 were left out of a, an 11,000-strong column. So all their machine guns and everything, they didn't do anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Mahdi, Mahdi's forces used the country brilliantly as guerrilla forces, you know, because they knew where these, this army would have to water, you know, which watering places they'd have to go to to survive, you know. So, and, um, they, I mean, they literally wiped them out. And, of course, they captured all the weapons and they captured the Gatling guns and they captured the mounting guns. And it was a huge victory. It was a shock. It sent shockwaves through the Western world because this had never happened before, this huge column. And they weren't British soldiers, they were mostly Egyptian. They had some European officers and the commander was British. But, they, you know, this was a huge shock because you know, this Muslim... Rebel army had just wiped out this state, you know, collar with state-of-the-art modern equipment. You know, so it sent shockwaves through the world. There was nothing quite like it, you know, Mm -hmm. had happened. And of course, then Khartoum, the capital of the Sudan, which lies, as you probably know, where the uh, blue and white Niles meet, the the junction of the blue and white Niles. Mm -hmm. Khartoum was then open to this huge. Mahdi's force and they had 2,000 men 2,000 soldiers to defend it. Of course there were a lot of civilians in Khartoum as well, some European but mostly Sudanese. And um, basically (coughs) Gordon was sent, excuse me, Gordon was sent to evacuate the garrison because although they weren't actually British soldiers it would have been a really <clears throat> Excuse me, a bad propaganda um, It would have been a great propaganda victory for the Mahdi
1: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> Excuse me So um, that's really why he was sent To evacuate the garrison Once he got there Gordon realised Hey, if I withdraw all these soldiers Or these soldiers There's nobody to protect their civilians hmm And those civilians weren't rebels. They were on the side of the the government regime, you know. So, and, you know, there were tens of thousands of them. And Gordon said, no, we can't do that. So he sent all the European civilians to safety on uh, steamers down the Nile. But he stayed with the garrison, determined to defend Khartoum and, you know, to defend the civilians. Basically, uh, that's what it was about. And, you know, as I've said, Gordon was a man of honour, and it was almost, it was predictable, actually, that he would have taken that stand. Mm. And, um, and
1: oh, sorry, continue, Michael. Yeah. No, um, uh, and so so yeah. basically this takes us up to him and the garrison, yeah. basically defending right. uh, Khartoum against the army. And, and what yeah. obviously makes the, Gordon... Against the rebel. Sorry, yeah. against the rebel army, yeah. And so yeah. what what makes Gordon stand out? Uh, famously, both both at the time and now, is the manner of his, his end. Um, could you explain the, how that played out and, and why it's so um, iconic?
2: Well, it's iconic in one sense, that, and this is based <coughs> mainly on the Edward Joy painting, which is actually on the back cover of my book, mm-hmm. which is the classic sort of imperial mm-hmm. hero, you know? There's Gordon standing there unpertur- unperturbed, in front of these hordes of dervishes with the spears and and swords and scimitars and you know he, he's this martyr of the empire but there's a lot of evidence that this is not how it actually played out you know that there are eyewitnesses who say Gordon actually fought to the end against the Mahdi's that he shot several people this is also in my book um, that he he shot several Um, of the enemy he even fought with his sword Mm. so it may I mean it's not absolutely conclusive but there is a very good possibility that he didn't die in the way depicted in that uh, painting but of course that painting became the great icon of the empire you know the martyr of the empire and so on yes it's
0: it's, an iconic painting Um, yeah exactly yeah And so Anthony Nutting, who also wrote a book on Gordon, um, believed that he had sort of a a long standing death wish. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, supposedly he went into battle with only a cane. But Nutting argues that his (coughs) death irresponsibly involved cartoon in his ruin. How far would you agree with this sort of criticism?
2: Well, um, first of all, the cane, we mentioned this before. Now, Gordon um, started using a cane when he was commander of the um, ever-victorious army in China. And he'd actually acquired this idea from a previous commander, a man called Ward, who was an American mercenary, who went into battle wearing a frock coat, carrying only a cane. And Gordon must have thought this was a pretty good idea, you know, because it showed, you know, how cool he was under fire and so on. So it wasn't actually... Originally, his idea, you know, he acquired it. But of course, he did do that. Yeah, that's true. As for a death death wish, no, I don't. I I don't believe that for a minute. Mm. I think that the thing about Gordon was, I said he was this non-dualist Christian, and of course, in that outlook, death is not the end.
0: Yeah, you know that
2: yeah. in I'm, non-dualism, death is not the end. You just move on to another state. You know. Yeah. So I'm, and therefore. You know, you don't have to be afraid of death. Yeah. So I think that ultimately Gordon wasn't afraid because he knew that. Do, I do don't you, think it was a, a so-called death wish. I mean, for me, that's kind of Freudian, you know, uh, psychobabble, Parliament, really. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think yeah. that
1: he went into cartoon? Obviously, you said he got all the civilians out, etc. Do you think yeah. he sort of knew that he was going to die there? Or... Or, or what, what? I mean, He must have
2: known there was a possibility.
1: Yeah. Mm, okay.
2: But then you know, in war, there's always a possibility. I mean, some of the um, engagements he was in 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 China were were very bloody. You know, and he could have easily been killed there. I mean, if if he was determined to die, why didn't he do it in
1: China? You know. Yeah, yeah, it's a fair point. You know, so, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and and something that we haven't spoken about is Gordon's sexuality. And and historians, again, yeah. some historians argue. Uh, that this played a role in his actions and and that that it paid a conflict or it was part of a conflict between his his uh devoutly held christian ideals and 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 that yeah. made him feel ashamed of himself um, and and that he wanted to seek a glorious you know, death in order to sort of uh, uh, purge that sort of sinfulness, so to speak, do you, do you, do you, do you buy that, that theory?
2: Well, as I've said, I, I don't buy that at all. I mean, I don't think that he had a death wish, you know, I think he was just a very brave man who was prepared to die, but that doesn't mean he wanted to die. Um, as for the homosexuality, I'm pretty certain that he was a repressed homosexual. And, you know, he liked orphans, he looked after or- orphan boys, both in China and in Britain, when he was stationed there so but there's absolutely no evidence of any physical relationship none whatsoever
1: oh really so
2: you know i would be pretty sure he was a repressed homosexual i mean like t lawrence was another one you know so it wasn't that uncommon in those days you know and it was something that you know you didn't talk about perhaps you know so do you um, feel a lot of you know sort
1: of modern people projecting onto it again
2: you know this sort of idea of this a man who was tormented by this shame of being actually, a you know, a a closet homosexual, you know, I, I, no, I I don't buy it, I'm sorry. (laughs)
0: No, 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 (laughs) interesting to hear, thank you. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's, that is really interesting. And I guess this was the start of a long line of major blows for the British Empire. Uh, You had the Boer War, Scott in Antarctica, and right the way through to the Suez uh, Crisis. In that sense, sort of Gordon's life almost foreshadowed the decline of the British Empire. Critics would argue Gordon was simply one of a long list of sort of empire builders wedded to the Western imperial ideal. How far would you sort of agree with this?
2: Well, I think I've already said that um, Gordon definitely was not an empire builder. I mean, he said that, and this is on record. You know, he said that he wanted he would like the Sudan to go back to how it was before um, the Turks invaded Sudan in 1820, Muhammad Ali Pasha. Um, so he wanted, and he knew that that indigenous culture, those indig- indigenous cultures were very egalitarian. And I can you know, say that they still are. But I lived with a nomad tribe in Sudan for three years as one of them. And, you know, I know that they're very egalitarian, you know. Mm. so. You know, I don't think it can be said that he was a sort of classic empire builder at all. He was mm. definitely against, uh, you know, the in- interference of imperial powers in indigenous culture. Yeah, quite fa- rightly so. Uh, right? fascinating,
1: <laughs> no, it's fascinating yeah. stuff, and also hearing yeah. about how you've actually, I mean, we have uh, I'm going to ask you a bit about that a bit later, about the, your experiences yeah. and how they tally with Gordon. Okay. but anyway, um, uh, and so following, as we've touched upon with that, you know, with that uh, very striking painting, Gordon, following his yeah. death, was viewed as a martyr by, by the British public, and uh, yeah. such was the popularity of Gordon that the first critical book by a British author of Gordon's character, wasn't published until 1908. Um, Why then do you think that Gordon isn't so widely known today?
2: Well, I think we're we're back to the old materialism thing, you see, that, I mean, I don't want to labour this, but you see, for example, the idea of a hero, and that's true today, this is true today as well, is somebody who goes out and kills a lot of people, you know? Mm. I mean, I was in Special Forces. I know about this. And, you know, it's James Bond, you know, license to kill, you know, that kind of thing. So it doesn't matter whether it's fair or not. It's just how, you know, if you kill a lot of people and destroy a lot of things, then you're a hero. You know? Yeah. So (laughs) you see what I mean? But Gordon wasn't that kind of hero. He was what you might call a Christian hero, somebody who believed in justice. He believed that a warrior fights for justice, you know? So that made him sort of stand out. And I think that, you know, people were either jealous of that or couldn't stand the idea that there actually was, you know, a genuine hero uh, amongst them. And they tried to uh, discredit him. That That's my opinion. And, you know, the, in materialism, of course, anything that's spiritual, you know, like, you know, shamans or magicians or, you know, any of these old idea, you know, ideas of spirituality are considered to be fake. I mean, they must be fake, you know. Yeah. They can't be... You know, it's the old left hemisphere sort of view, you know, yeah. that anything that smacks of magic or enchantment or anything like that or spirituality must be a fake, Yeah. you know. So that was another reason, I think, why people like Strakey called him a hypocrite,
1: yeah. which I don't
2: think he was. yeah. You know?
1: yeah. Actually, yeah, you just brought us on very, very neatly to to the next question about Strachey, um, uh, Lytton Strachey, and uh, obviously the famous author, and he, as you said, depicted uh, Gordon as a a monumental hypocrite in his famous book about Victorian figures, and this has kind of been a a standard revisionist approach since that, and he noted, obviously, the contrast between what he said were Gordon's, Christian ideals but then his war and 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 sort of violent streak um how far would you yeah again I mean obviously you've sort of answered a bit but do you want to expand on how far you agree with Strakey
2: right well I think um you mentioned before that you know he said that Gordon's profession was one of hate and you know cruelty and violence and so on but I think that Gordon you know as I said he was the fourth generation you know officer military officer in his family and he regarded soldiering as being an honorable profession and he very much believed that you know one fought for justice one fought for fairness you know
1: yeah
2: and of course when he was in china he was just a major a field officer you know he he didn't really have much say but you know he, he just followed his orders you know he was told to do this we'd do it you know but um Of course, later in Sudan, when he was a general, you know, he had more jurisdiction, you know. And as I said, he hated the venality of the Mm. Turco-Egyptian regime and the way many officials were involved in the slave trade and so on. So I don't think, you know, it's not necessarily true that, you know, soldiering is to do with hate, you know. I mean, basically, soldiers just do what they're told, you know, and if they're told this is the enemy, you know, then they shoot the enemy, you know, but it's not because they hate them, it's because that's what they do, you know, so. Mm.
0: And Michael, you're, you're an explorer yeah. yourself. Uh, do you think yeah. that's what drew you to Gordon in the first place?
2: Um, well, no, I mean, actually, um, I was in the, the military, in the SAS, and I, then I was a policeman in a kind of SWAT unit in Northern Ireland, and I got completely disillusioned with all this. And I saw an advertisement for volunteer teachers, English teachers in the Sudan. Mm. And I applied for it and I found out all you needed was a degree. I mean, they just told me, have you got a degree? I said, yes, it's yes. okay, you got the job. So, <laughs> so I left all that behind, you know? And the only thing I knew about the Sudan was the film I'd seen, the Charlton Heston. I'm sure you know the one, it's just called Cartoon,
1: mm.
2: which is about Gordon of Khartoum. It's a 1960s yeah. film. And that's all I knew. I'd seen this film. I even had to look it up in the Atlas, you know, to find out where the Sudan actually was. <laughs> so I had this story in my mind the whole time I was in the Sudan. That You know, this was the big story about Sudan as far as, you know, the British were concerned. And it's an incredible story. That's the thing. I mean, you couldn't have um, created a story like that. It's just incredible, you know, that they created the Camel Corps, to march across the desert and they fought these two amazing battles and you know then they got on a steamer and they sailed up the Nile and they arrived two days too late you know mm. and Gordon was already dead I mean it's, yeah. it's an incredible story you know in yeah. you know, the whole thing and then but of course Sudan was recaptured 14 years later by Herbert Kitchener yeah you know with it, who actually bought, uh, built a railway across the Nubian desert which is still there to advance his, he was another engineer, you know, and to advance his troops to Onderman where there was, you know, the famous charge of the 17th, 21st Lancers in which Winston Churchill took part, the last regimental cavalry charge
1: Oh, yeah.
2: so you know the whole story is really incredible
1: yeah strikes a romantic chord doesn't it doesn't yeah it, no it, yeah. Does, it does yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> yeah and and you touched upon it before as well but would like to sort of delve into that a bit more you, you, your own experiences in the sahara do, how, how does that inform how you see gordon and 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 how has the region changed since since gordon's era
2: um well I um, lived in Sudan for 10 years. Three of those years I spent, as I said, living with a traditional nomad tribe, the Kababish, um, who actually did not play a part in the Mahdist um, uprising. Uh, but anyway, they were completely unchanged. I mean, Sudan then was a country that had been bypassed you know, by development and there was only one road. It's a huge country. It was wow. a huge country, a million square miles. This is before South Sudan seceded. Yeah. And I mean, it was every kind of culture there, every kind of Arab and African culture and everything in between, you know. And the Bagara nomads who ride on cattle and the camel riders and that, you know, and it was completely untouched. I mean, oh. the town that I actually taught English in, Janena, which is on the Chad border, had no electricity, no running water, you know. Uh, yeah, so no telephones, no TV, nothing, and you you would see these camel caravans coming into the town with these beautiful girls with their long uh, oiled hair, you know, and riding on the camels, and men riding on horses with the big spears, you know. Mm-hmm. It was just incredible. It's yeah. like something from the Arabian Nights. That's you know, magical. So Sounds magical. That was amazing. It was magical. Yeah, really magical. And of course, it's not like that now. I mean. Um, because they built a lot of roads, you know, when they got the oil from South Sudan. um, And, you know, everything's changed. I mean, there still are nomad tribes, Uh, but I was there a few years ago, and the nomad tribe, the the tribe I lived with, when I lived with with them, they knew nothing about the outside world at all. I mean, you could say, you know, the name of the president, and they say, who? (laughs) Who's the president? What do you mean, you know? We don't have a president, you know? And if you said talk about the Sudanese, oh, we're not Sudanese. Those are the guys in the villages, you know. Mm. We're Arabs, you know. So, you know, they had no idea about a nation state or about borders or anything, you know, when I lived with them. And that really was magical. Um, But, of course, it's not like that now. As I was saying, I I went back there a few years ago and I found they still live in tents, Mm. but they have cell phones and things. There were a lot of motor cars, which... You know when i lived with them for three years i didn't see one motor car really? but now quite a few people have land rovers and so on you know so it's all changed
0: and uh, interesting what's what's gordon's legacy in sudan do people remember him
2: um yeah i think you know that the educated people do i mean the ordinary people i mean people in cartoon people who have been at school and so on they would learn about gordon i yeah. think you know and there was but, yeah, I, I'm not sure that he's really famous in Sudan.
1: Interesting. Um, and, and what what would you think the most valuable lessons that Gordon's story or life teaches us?
2: Well, I, I did write this in my book, and I was quite pleased to see yesterday, they've actually quoted this in Wikipedia, the last right, quote. It's mm-hmm. quite, I don't know if you've seen this, quite a big entry on Gordon. And, you know, uh, what I think is that you know, there are many British military heroes, but most of them were just involved in, you know, bringing money into the country, people like Cecil Rhodes, you know, who exploited people, and you know, and so on. Uh, but um, Gordon was one, the only one that I can think of who actually didn't believe in that. You know, he didn't, he was an individualist, yes, but he believed in following his own t- intuition. Rather than just taking orders, yeah. so he instead of just following orders, he did what he thought was right, and to me that's pretty unique, and it's something we need to learn a lesson from, because yeah. you know we're living in a world which is increasingly conformist, yeah. you know, so I can't think of many military, you know, of many generals who actually, you know, I think it was Baring who said that he treated orders as a basis for discussion, you know, so, yeah, yeah. so, but, I mean, basically he followed his own inner voices, you know, and by that I'm not sort of suggesting anything sort of, you know, loony or anything like that, I mean, he just followed the intuitions that we actually all have, you know, because I I think we all have a sense of justice, it's just that it gets suppressed because we live in a society that doesn't, you know, so, yeah,
1: no that's an interesting and not one it's not 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 necessarily a lesson that you'd expect in the current environment from a colonial a colonial figure so it's nice to hear that uh and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and one last one michael if you were at the pub today with gordon what would be the one question that you would ask him
2: well i think the the sixty thousand dollar question is why he's and to hear from his own lips why he actually stayed um in cartoon when hmm. his orders were to evacuate the garrison but i mean that's an old question but the question i'd like to ask him more about now is about his spiritual attitudes you know because i yeah. think and I, I, you may not agree but i think that our society is actually undergoing this change in values right now yeah, i think it definitely. started with you know black lives matter and all those things you know that and you know it, I think I think our society is undergoing this change mm. in their attitudes, and I think that you know Gordon needs reassessing in that light. You know, yeah. I think he's due for a reevaluation. <laughs> actually, you know.
1: Well, hopefully, your 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 book and your work can can help help do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, d- uh, thanks very much. Uh, yeah, Michael. I think that's that's a wrap. It's uh, it's um, it was really good. There, uh, really fascinating to talk to you and hear about all the sort of threads in gordon's life
2: thank you yeah thank you it's a pleasure
1: brilliant yeah thank you thank you very much michael